I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we examine the stories of the Bible and we attempt to discern the underlying implications of the text. Well, here we are once again, learning the qualities of the God of Israel. For the past five weeks, we have proceeded through this book, this second book of the Torah, and God has been promising that he will deliver his people out of the slavery of Egypt. But up till now, God has only sent a man to deliver a message. As far as the people have seen, God himself has done little to nothing to deliver them. This week, though, this week begins a series of judgments upon Egypt that are what tend to catch our attention and that make for great television. This week, we begin a three-week exploration on the plagues of Egypt, these ten events that God causes to happen in the land of Egypt. Now, why were these plagues sent? Are they simply sent as a punishment? Well, there's a bit of that in this. God's wrath at the injustice of what has occurred in Egypt has reached its limit, and the time for it to be revealed has come. Is it as a judgment? Well, most definitely, yes. One of the things that we'll talk about next week is how these plagues are designed as judgments upon the gods of Egypt, from the smallest to the largest. They're an indictment of the false religion of Egypt and of all who blindly follow the Pharaoh. Were they designed to strike fear into the hearts of the people? Yes, that's also part of it. The plagues do indeed create fear in the inhabitants of Egypt and in the nations that Israel will be spending the next 40 years wandering through. So while all of these are true and are part of the goal of these plagues, there's something more going on here. Because these plagues themselves, they're a revelation of God's name on many different levels, and so that's going to be our topic. We're going to be discussing the plagues for the next three weeks, and we're going to do something just a bit different for these next three weeks. Rather than sitting in just a few of the plagues each week and attempting to discern the nature of just a few disconnected from the rest, for the next three weeks, we're going to be discussing the entirety of the plagues, all ten of them, from three separate viewpoints, with other revelations scattered throughout. So we're going to see three different levels of revelation of God's character that are contained in these plagues that were brought on Egypt. Each one is vitally important, and each one revealed progressively in great detail through these plagues. So while each week we will only read of a few of the plagues as part of the Parsha's text, this week we'll read of the first three, next week we'll read of the following four, and then the last week the final three plagues. Each week we're going to be discussing all ten plagues. And each week we'll be discussing a different characteristic of God that's revealed progressively throughout the plagues. Now, each one of these characteristics is something that we have seen before. They're not foreign to us as the reader. 
And some of these topics have been covered in some depth. Through the plagues, we get a view of these characteristics of God with the contrast of Egypt added in for extra emphasis and effect. And this can help us to gain a deeper appreciation for things that we all too often take for granted. These weeks will not be so much about application of something that's in the text, but rather an exploration of just why it is that we worship Hashem, this great God of Israel. And primarily, we will be looking at His qualities as Creator, His authority, His justice, His holiness, His power, His minute control, and peeking through all of this, His mercy, His compassion, and His love. This week, we'll be looking at God's power, His control, and His intimate knowledge in His role as Creator and Sustainer, because He he made it all, everything that we experience in creation. And this week, we're going to look at just what it means within the scope of the plagues and the context of Egypt. Exodus seven seventeen through eight nineteen. Thus said Hashem, By this you know that I am Hashem. See, I am striking the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish in the river shall die, and the river shall stink, and the Mitzrites shall find it impossible to drink the water of the river. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, Say to Aaron, Take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Mitzrayim, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, and over all their pools of water, that they become blood. And there shall be blood in all the land of Mitzrayim, both in wooden and in stone containers. And Moshe and Aaron did so, as Hashem commanded. And he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. And the fish that were in the river died, and the river stank, and the Mitzrites were unable to drink the water of the river. And the blood was in all the land of Mitzrayim. And the magicians of Mitzrayim did the same with their magic. And the heart of Pharaoh was strengthened, and he did not listen to them, as Hashem had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and his heart was not moved by this either. And all the Mitzrites dug all around the river for water to drink, for they were unable to drink the water of the river. And seven days were completed after Hashem had struck the river. And Hashem spoke to Moshe, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus said Hashem, Let my people go so that they serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, see, I am smiting all your border with frogs. And the river shall swarm with frogs which shall go up, and shall come into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into your houses of your servants and on your people and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. And the frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And Hashem said to Moshe, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers, and over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up on the land of Mitzrayim. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Mitzrayim, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Mitzrayim. And the magicians did so with their magic and brought up frogs on the land of Mitzrayim. Pharaoh then called for Moshe and Aaron and said to them, Pray to Hashem to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I shall let the people go sacrifice to Hashem. And Moshe said to Pharaoh, Explain yourself to me. When am I to pray for you and for your servants and for your people to destroy the frogs from you and your houses and remain only in the river? So he said, Tomorrow. And he said, Let it be according to your word, so that you know that there is no one like Hashem our Elohim. And the frogs shall turn aside from you and from your houses and from your servants and from your people, and they shall remain in the river only. And Moshe and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moshe cried out to Hashem concerning the frogs which he had brought against Pharaoh. 
And Hashem did according to the word of Moshe, and the frogs died out of the houses, out of the courtyards, and out of the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. And when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart, and did not listen to them as Hashem had said. And Hashem said to Moshe, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land, so that it becomes gnats in all the land of Mitzrayim. And they did so. And Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth, and it became gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the land became gnats in all the land of Mitzrayim. And the magicians did similarly with their magic to bring forth gnats, but they were unable, and there were gnats on man and beast. The magicians then said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of Elohim. But the heart of Pharaoh was strengthened, and he did not listen to them, as Hashem had said. So, we're all pretty familiar with the plagues of Egypt. We recite them every year at Passover as we allow a drop of wine to drip from our fingers. We read them every year as we go through the book of Exodus. And we've all seen at least one of the movies or television events based on these events, even, even if it's just the VeggieTales version of Mo and the Big Exit. We are familiar with the plagues, at least a little. But how many of us could point out even a single thing that the plagues, besides the tenth one, what they teach us? Usually we simply look at the plagues as forces of nature being unleashed in various ways, but the lesson we usually take from them is don't mess with that God, and little more than that. Well, the plagues are indeed God releasing forces of nature to do his bidding, and it is in this viewpoint that we catch the first glimpse of what the plagues can teach us about the God of Israel. So every culture has a creation myth, every single one. Uh, the modern creation myth today is that there was an infinitesimally small singularity that exploded and released all of the building blocks of matter into the universe. A simply immaterial process of marbles of matter bouncing off of each other in this giant room and joining forces to create larger pieces of matter and so on. And this idea, it's a very modern one. Uh, this idea has only cropped up once the material makeup of an item became of most importance rather than a thing's purpose. For the rest of history and the rest of the world throughout history, there have been creation myths that have been passed from one generation to another. These ancient cultures were not so concerned about how a thing existed, but rather they wanted a reason for why everything existed. For Egyptians, their creation myth begins in a way that's similar to nearly every other creation myth of the ancient world. For ancient Egyptians, the process of creation began with the primordial chaotic waters. The only god that existed in these waters was Heka, the god of magic. Out of this chaotic water rose a solitary hill on which stood Atum, otherwise known as Ptah. And so, through the magic provided by Heka, Ptah mated with his own shadow and created Shu, the god of air, and Tefnut, the goddess of moisture. The god and goddess went into the world to explore, and were gone so long the Ptah sent out his eye to search for them. Uh, that's where the eye of Ra comes from. When they returned, Ptah shed tears, and from these tears were formed men and women, the firstborn of creation. Now these early men had nowhere to live, and so Shu and Tefnut mated, and they gave birth to Geb, the earth, and Nut, the heavens. Now Geb and Nut, they fell deeply in love with each other, but this was unacceptable to Ptah for some reason because they were siblings. Oh my gosh, I, I don't get it. He just made it with his own shadow, but whatever. 
And so he split Geb and Nut from each other, as he split the heavens from the earth. And since that time, they were cursed to look longingly on each other, but to never be able to touch again. Now at this time, though, Nut, the heavens, was already pregnant by Geb, and gave birth to Osiris, Isis, Set, Nephthys, and Horus, the five earliest gods of Egyptian mythology. And from these gods were born all of the other gods and goddesses, and all the rest of creation was formed and molded by these gods who lived in the heavens, but could never truly come to earth. So why don't I just go through this? Why is knowing the mythology of the Egyptian creation account important? Because as we'll discuss next week, part of what's occurring in these plagues is a judgment on the gods of Egypt. Hashem is demonstrating his own power and authority over these petty gods. But for this week, we're going to be looking at Hashem as the God of creation. And this claim of Hashem being the God of creation, it flies in the face of Egyptian mythology. You see, the the gods of creation in the Egyptian system, they abdicated their control, and they left to go do other things, whatever they do. The gods of creation prior to the heaven and the earth, they were no longer concerned with the affairs of men. Those who were left were the children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren of heaven and earth, or Geb and Nut, those two gods that had been separated eternally from one another. This means that there was no god on the scene that had the power to influence all aspects of the material world. One god would have control over a part of their own realm, and perhaps a small measure of control over an adjoining realm. But no god had control over all three realms, heaven, earth, and the waters. So it's no wonder that when confronted with a threat from Hashem that Pharaoh would not comply. Why would he care? Hashem is no threat to him in his eyes. Pharaoh saw himself as the earthly embodiment of Osiris, the firstborn of heaven, Nut. And Pharaoh was the way in which Osiris was able to exert his control over the earth while he himself was stuck in the heavens. There was no other god greater than Osiris, and he was the only one who had the most control of both heaven and earth, even if he did have no control over the water. But this was not the only reason that Pharaoh had no concern. His religion told him that gods are territorial. In his mind, this is why Hashem is asking Israel to leave in the first place, because Hashem has no power in Egypt according to Pharaoh's understanding. This was demonstrated by his allowance for Israel to be enslaved. If Hashem had power in Egypt, he would have never allowed the Hebrews to be enslaved. Pharaoh believed that he had nothing to worry about from Hashem because his power and authority did not stretch to this domain. Besides, in his mind, even if Hashem did have a measure of control over one realm, his influence would be limited. Hashem could send a man with power into Pharaoh's realm to exert a measure of influence, just as he was sent to the earth to exert control for Osiris. But that man would be limited and lesser than he was because he has home field advantage. Hashem or his messenger could could potentially harm him in one realm or even two of the realms of earth, air, or water, but not in all three. No god has power over all three in the Egyptian pantheon. And finally, Pharaoh understood magic to be the process of creation. Heka had existed alongside magic long before any other god. Ptah had used magic to begin the process of creation. His own magicians had been imbued with this power, and they used the very forces of creation itself. He had nothing to fear from an outside force. 
There was no greater power than the power of creation, and Pharaoh had it under his control as the embodiment of the firstborn of heaven. And so Pharaoh does not listen. And in the beginning, why should he? He had nothing to fear from Moses, nothing to fear from Aaron or from their God. And so the plagues on Egypt begin, one after another. And if we stack them next to each other, we see a pretty startling progression from one plague to the next. This progression is a revelation of control over the very forces of nature in the three major realms of Egyptian mythology. This progression is fascinating because it speaks directly to the Egyptian creation myth. But in other very real ways, it calls us back to Genesis 1 and 2 and the Bible's creation narrative as well. And so let's look at some of the specifics of each plague and track the progression as God demonstrates control over the entirety of the created order in various ways. So plague one, he turns the Nile to blood. Both the Egyptian and biblical creation stories begin with a God alone in the midst of chaotic waters. And Genesis 1-2 records the spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters, the initial state of creation. Add to this that, as we've discussed before back in chapter 1, the Nile was to the Egyptian mind the immediate source of life. The god Kanum was the god of the Nile and was also the potter god that formed humans in their mother's womb. The Nile was the giver of life to them. And Pharaoh had turned it into a method of execution for the innocent. The babies of Israel were being disposed of in the waves of the waters and in some ways consumed by the chaos that the water represented. But also, they're being destroyed by the one thing that all life in Egypt depended upon. The gift of life in Egypt had been turned into an instrument of death. And so here, as his first act of control over the various realms of creation, Hashem turns the water, this life-giving flow in the land of Egypt, into a place of death. No fresh water, nothing to drink for seven days. The Nile flowed as blood, and every bit of water in the land that found its source in the Nile also turned to blood. Wherever that water may have been, whether it was in ponds and cisterns, jugs, bowls, or anything else that gained its water when the Nile flooded. The only fresh water to be found in the entire land was found by digging wells into the earth and accessing the groundwater. But Pharaoh's own magicians, they're able to replicate the plague. They too control the elements of creation to some limited degree. And so when they're able to duplicate this wonder, he's not convinced at all. And so comes the second plague. In the second plague, the plague of frogs, we see the transition occur in the text. Hashem has already demonstrated his power over the realm of water, that primordial source of all life and creation itself. The transition that occurs here in the text is that the second plague, it begins in the water, but then comes up onto the land. And in so doing, the realm of control that's being demonstrated by Hashem is being shifted from the water to the land. And there, in the realm of the land, the plagues focus for the next five plagues. The frogs, they come from the water onto the land, and in this plague, Pharaoh notices something. Now, his own magicians are able to replicate the plague, so he's not feeling threatened. He controls the same power himself. What does he have to worry about? But it is, in fact, a nuisance, and so he calls for Moses to pray to Hashem for relief from this onslaught of frogs. And when Moses asks, when should I do this? Pharaoh responds with, uh, tomorrow. 
Now, Pharaoh, in saying tomorrow, he's setting up a little test for Hashem with this request. If he is going to come into this land and cause troubles, then Pharaoh needs to know how fine his control is and whether he's listening to Moses or not. I mean, sure, Hashem can make the plagues come and he can make the plagues go, but can your God control when this occurs? Is this event perhaps something that's on a timer, or is your God actively controlling when this plague comes and goes? Does he hear Moses' prayers is the base question that Pharaoh is asking with this request. And God responds with an affirmative. Yes, he does answer Moses' prayers at the time that Moses prays. And yet, after this, the heart of Pharaoh is hardened. Now, this time, rather than the previous words that we've read before, we see a new word used to describe Pharaoh's heart. It's not chazak, it's not strength or courage, it's not kasha, it doesn't mean to be cruel or severe, it's kavod. It means to be honored, glorious, or elevated. Pharaoh exalted himself in his heart, and it prevents him from complying with God. His magicians, they could all do the same thing after all. Why react in humility? No reason. Perhaps even Pharaoh was excited by the prospect of a worthy opponent. Beginning in the third plague and all the way through the sixth plague, the realm of control stays on the earth, and each successive plague demonstrates an order of control and authority and an order of magnitude above the previous. This change in realm is made obvious when God tells Aaron to strike the dust of the land for the third plague so that it will become gnats. Once again, we get a glimpse of biblical creation as it was dust that was the nature of man in Genesis 2 and 3. And from this same afar eretz, or dust of the earth, Hashem creates gnats with which to plague Egypt. It is at this plague that an issue crops up. The magicians. They can't replicate this plague. They hold the very power of creation at their fingertips, according to their own minds. And they cannot replicate this plague. The only other alternative here is that there is, in fact, a God at work whose power is greater than theirs. Perhaps one who has a power that extends to an area outside of creation? Perhaps. In the fourth plague, we find something interesting in the text. Now, we usually read that this is swarms of flies that were released on Egypt. But we don't know that for sure. The word used for swarms that's translated as swarms or as flies throughout is arov, and it simply means a mixture or a swarm. The word flies is never used in the Hebrew in this chapter. In fact, we're never told what kind of swarm it is. In Jewish tradition, it was a swarm of wild animals that descended on Egypt. Now, regardless of whether it was a larger, peskier flying insect, perhaps a midge or a biting fly, or wild animals run amok, snakes and dogs and hyenas, the control exhibited is ramped up a notch from a small annoyance to larger and real annoyances in this fourth plague. It's also in this fourth plague that Pharaoh cracks for the first time. He agrees to let Israel go and sacrifice if Moses will remove the plague. But don't go too far. Moses complies, and once again, Pharaoh is exalted or glorified in his heart, and he does not let the people go. In the fifth plague, the target then gets a bit bigger. The land plague started with an amphibian, went to flying insects, and then 
I tend to go with the Jewish tradition on this one of the wild beasts. In the fifth plague, the target becomes the domesticated animals. Each successive plague is getting closer and closer to home. It's growing larger and larger in the land. And in this plague, we begin to see a process of the deconstruction of creation in the land of Egypt. It begins with the animals dying of this unknown plague. Pharaoh sees the plague, and the fallout is recognized that Israel wasn't touched. And yet, what does Pharaoh do? Pharaoh glorifies himself once again. Why does he keep doing this? Well, it's because at this point, Hashem has only demonstrated control over the land and the water. But he, Pharaoh, is of the heaven. Osiris in the heavens is greater in his mind than anything that has occurred so far. And so far it has been Pharaoh that has done it for himself, elevated himself. Hashem has not needed to interfere in his heart at all at this point. The next plague, though, is going to change that some. The sixth plague is a transition plague, just as the second one. In the second plague, the realm of influence was a mix between water and land. Well, in this plague, the ashes from a fire are thrown into the air, and earth and heaven mix in this plague. Humans, the creatures that in Egyptian mythology are part heaven and part earth, are now the target. A new realm of influence is being revealed. Human health itself was a matter of the heavens, according to Egyptian mythology. Health was not a matter of medicine or nutrition or even diet to the Egyptians. It was only ever the realm of the gods, and they determined who got sick and who did not. And in this plague, humans, the height of land inhabitants with a bit of heaven in them, the firstborn of earthbound creatures of Egyptian mythology, they're cursed with a heavenly curse a skin sickness of sores and boils. And in this plague, even the magicians, those with the powers of creation and health at their fingertips, are subject to the same distress as everyone else. And at this, Pharaoh falters. The second crack appears in his armor, and it's as if he would have given in at this time, not out of humility or an acknowledgement of the power and authority of Hashem, but only and simply out of fear. And so it is, at this point, that Hashem gives Pharaoh courage. He strengthens him, Chazak, to continue in the defiance that he naturally felt. Hashem is not looking for submission out of fear from Pharaoh. He wants submission in humility and recognition of the might and role of Hashem. He desires repentance. And that's something that Pharaoh does not want to give. And from this point through the ninth plague, the realm of influence for the future plagues moves from the waters to the earth and then to the heavenly realm. In this next set of plagues, Hashem demonstrates very concretely to the Egyptian and Hebrew mind that he is in fact the God of all creation and that he has not abdicated his position. He still has power over all of the three realms. The role of Hashem as the Creator is cemented in these last plagues, as we will see. And not just us, though. This is put on display for the world to see. And so in the seventh plague, a great storm of hail descends on Egypt. And in this plague, the people are given a choice. Do you believe in Hashem, or do you believe in Pharaoh? Those who believed in Hashem were given a way out, a way to escape this plague with their lives. Go inside. 
Take all of your possessions inside, you and everyone and everything that you care about. And so the hail falls, and among the hail is fire. Now, there are many who believe this to be ice and fire falling from the sky simultaneously, which would be completely awesome to behold. Uh, but there are others who claim that the fire here is simply lightning. I tend towards the first interpretation because, as we'll see later in Mount Sinai in chapter 19 and 20, the author of this book knew a different word for lightning. The word used here is aish, fire, and not barak, or lightning. This one plague, it accomplishes so much in Egypt. It demonstrates Hashem's power over the weather, over the opposing elements of ice and fire, as well as using this event to take out the early crops of Egypt. In this plague, the deconstruction of Egyptian creation is taken to the next step. It began with the beasts, and now it's going to the plants. A bit. They're not completely gone yet. At the end of this plague, Pharaoh does two things. He glorifies his heart, and then he strengthens his heart. Both of the recent words are used in this plague to describe Pharaoh's heart. In the eighth plague, it's a plague of locusts, and we usually think of this as similar to the plague of gnats or the plague of flies, because it is a flying swarm after all, right? But if we pay close attention, we'll find that the means of this plague's delivery and removal is a wind. An east wind brings the locusts into Egypt, and a west wind takes them away. This plague is sourced in the heavens. It is not a plague of land, it is not a plague of sea and the locusts themselves finish off the destruction of the plant life that was begun in the last plague. Hashem is unmaking the order of creation to demonstrate His own control over all creation. And as the last of the series of nine plagues, which if we examine it for patterns, we can easily see that the tenth plague is its own thing, entirely demonstrates this in a very real way. What was the very first thing in creation? The first word spoken by God that we have recorded. Let there be light. It is for the first time in history of the world that command is reversed. For three days, light simply does not work in Egypt. No one gets up. No one eats. All movement ceases true and utter, uncreated existence for three whole days. This wasn't simply darkness as in night. This was a darkness the likes of which none of us are capable of experiencing. Our darkness, even if we go into a dark cave, can be cut by a man-made light. But not even a lantern or a fire would work in this darkness. Creation had ceased fully. The Egyptian creation myth had been proven to be just that, a legend, not real. But there was one thing left to reveal, one last revelation of Hashem's control, the most important thing in creation to all societies, and that is the power over life and death, the control over who receives what. Hashem is demonstrating in this final plague that Pharaoh is no God. Pharaoh has no power. Pharaoh can't even protect his own firstborn from Hashem. 
He had destroyed the children of the Hebrews for nearly 80 years, and now the time has come for Pharaoh and everyone else who had participated and not repented to experience the same destruction and grief. This supposed embodiment of the firstborn of heaven cannot prevent the death of his own firstborn when the God of Israel chooses that the time has come for his death. These plagues, they are not just random acts of nature. They are a progressive revelation of God's name in so many ways that matter. And this first week, we see God as the God of creation. He's not a God who simply made and then walked away, as many would like to believe even today. He is present, and he still has intimate control over every aspect of creation. He's the one who controls the waters of chaos, who can take the source of life and make it death. The one who controls all realms of influence and all elements of creation. The one who controls all living things, from fish to frogs to fleas to both wild and domesticated animals and the human body itself. Even the weather, the winds, and the very light from the heavenly luminaries obey his control. He is a God to be feared. He is a God to be honored because he is the God of power and authority. He could squash any one of us like a bug at any moment, and he can create us into something new in the very next instant. He is intimately in control of all aspects of nature, including time itself. And for this moment in history, this moment of the plagues of Egypt, God lowers the veil he reveals these qualities in a very real way for the whole world to see. From this moment on, there was no one in the world who has an excuse for not knowing who the God of creation is. He is the one and only Hashem, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. The one who will be what he will be, and he has no other beside him. The Lord of all, the King of creation, the one with all honor and authority, the originator of life, and the one whom we seek as we, Deresh Chai. Blessed be his name. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we dare as we seek life. Shalom.